And open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, we'll be there for a little bit. We're going to spend the majority of the lesson in, in the Gospel of John, but we're going to start in Exodus 19. Um, I'll say at the beginning, one thing that I've noticed here, and, and I, I, I can't speak from a whole lot of experience, only because I haven't traveled as, as, as much as some people. However, one thing I, I, I've noticed about being here at Oak Mountain is just how many people are having to take care of loved ones. Uh, and how many children are having to take care of parents. How many husbands are having to take care of wives. Um, wives taking care of their husbands. There's a lot of difficult situations here. And I, I am, um, well, I'm humbled um, by the fact of how many people do it in, in such a diligent and humble way. And I'm thankful for your example. Um, I haven't known you all too long. But it's been a humbling experience to see uh, the ways in which uh, y'all take care of people that you love. Because that's indicative of how much you love and, and honor God, I believe. And that's something that we should all be uh, striving towards and certainly supporting those who are uh, taking care of loved ones. If you were to try and answer this question, if you were to try and explain who God is to somebody. If someone were to ask you who is God and you were to explain it, where would you begin? How would you explain who God is? With what would you describe Him? Maybe, maybe Romans 1 and verse 20 comes to mind. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, His divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what He has made. So maybe, maybe you're going to point to creation to try and explain who God is to somebody. Maybe you take Him to the edge of the Grand Canyon and say, this, this is my God here. Um, maybe you show them footage of the recent hurricane that went through Florida, destroyed people's homes, and think, that's, look at God. Look what he, He's able to do. Maybe you show them the pal's baby, and you say, this, this is God right here. And, and certainly God is, is wrapped up in all of those things. But in order for us to answer this question of who is God, it's important to ask, well, who does God say that He is? How does God explain Himself to us? And as I started thinking about that question, um, at least the first passage that came to my mind, I think there's a lot of different places we could go, but the first passage that came to my mind is uh, 1 Kings 19, where Elijah, is, he's, he's depressed and he's, he's alone, but he goes to, he's told to go seek God on the mountain. And so he goes up to that mountain, and then while he's on this mountain, some pretty crazy things happen. A strong wind comes by. It's able to like, separate mountains. Uh, an earthquake comes by. A fire comes by. But the, the writer points out very deliberately that God was not in those things. Now, could he have been? Sure, but he's not in those things. But God appears to Elijah in a gentle breeze, and it's through that gentle breeze that he speaks to him. That's interesting. God speaks to Elijah in this small, subtle way. From the beginning, sure, God has shown himself in many different ways, but he has shown and revealed himself most completely through his word. God has explained who he is and shown himself through his word. Of course, there are examples of him showing signs and miracles and wonders and all these different things that show uh, his power. But he reveals to us who he is, what kind of God he is, most completely through his word. Again, creation comes into being, and certainly that's a great sign, it's a great wonder, but how does that come into being? But through his 
words. He speaks it into being. Though there are great signs and wonders uh, as God delivers the people from Egypt through, the, through these plagues. And then uh, at Mount Sinai, God shows himself to the people. But God is most clearly seen through the law that is given. John's account of the gospel calls Jesus' miracles. He calls them signs. Because, like signs, they're pointing you in a direction. They're, they're directing you to something else. John calls Jesus' miracle signs because they're pointing to His words. I believe that's the implication. God speaks, explains Himself through words. And one thing, perhaps, perhaps the main thing that God is trying to explain about Himself in His Word is that He is holy. Maybe just because my mind's been on this subject a lot recently, I've noticed over and over this morning, people have been pointing their attention to the Holy God, describing Him in that way. Um, God reveals Himself through His Word and His holiness through His Word. Uh, one sign and miracle that we could go to, uh, in Exodus chapter 3, Moses sees this burning bush, right? And what's so strange is that this bush is on fire, and yet for some reason it's not consumed. And so out of curiosity, uh, perhaps he starts to approach that, but then he hears a voice saying, hey, hold up. Hold up. This is holy ground. Remove those sandals. How would Moses have known that this was holy ground? Was there something inherent about the ground that made it holy? It's because God told him it was holy. God revealed himself. God's presence made that ground holy. We learn in the law. There, uh, there's, there's a lot of different things that God deems holy. You can read through the garments that the priests put on, the objects that are in the, the tabernacle, the offerings themselves. They're all called holy. Is it because there's something inherent about these objects and these garments and these acts that are holy? No. God said they were holy. These things are being set aside for God's purpose. And God told him, told them those things. Would they have known that otherwise? I think the implication is no. And in addition to God being holy and God deeming certain things and acts as holy, God wants us to be holy. In order to bring us into a loving relationship with him, he calls us to be holy. But, but, but God's holiness is so far above us, Scripture teaches that. There's nothing holy in anything else that is equal to God. Uh, Hannah sings in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 2, No one is holy like the Lord. Isaiah, speaking for God in Isaiah 40, says, To whom then will you liken me, that I may be his equal, says the Holy One. There's nothing as holy as God. We are the dry bush in the comparison in Exodus chapter 3, and yet somehow we are not consumed. How is that the case? How is it that we become holy? Well, go to Exodus chapter 19. He tells us through His Word, Exodus 19, beginning of verse 4, He says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey My voice and keep My covenant, then you shall be My own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is Mine. And you shall be to Me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. At this point, God has delivered His people from Egypt. He has shown them wondrous signs by, by bringing them through the Red Sea. He's defeated enemies to them, and now He says, you're going to be a holy nation of mine. But did you catch how that, how that happens? How is it that they become a holy nation? He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's how we're holy. So how did God reveal His holiness and reveal how we then can be holy? It's through His Word. God has revealed how we become holy through 
His Word. If you look at Leviticus 7 through 9, if you look at Leviticus 7 through 9, there's a lot of different things that are brought up uh, in these passages. Uh, priests are, are discussed, the sacrifices that they're offering. Aaron his, and his sons are consecrated, uh, meaning they're, they're set aside for a specific person, a purpose. They are made holy. Uh, Aaron's uh, sacrifices are discussed. And throughout all of this, holiness appears over and over and over. These things are holy. And then we get to Leviticus 10 which is a pretty familiar story with some, uh, the story of Nadab and Abihu. Aaron's sons, who were just consecrated a couple chapters before, who were made holy, they offer this strange fire. Other versions render an unauthorized fire. They offer this fire that was outside of what God told them. And this is where we typically make the valid point that we shouldn't go outside of what God has authorized. But you understand why that's a problem? Well, look at Leviticus 10 in verse 3. It's important to know why this act is so wrong. God says in verse 3, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. It would seem that in this act, not following God's word slash commandment, Nadab and Abihu are treating God in an unholy way. They're not honoring him in the way that he has told them to honor him. They are representing or, or, or going before the people in a way that God has not authorized. And so their end is destruction. Therefore, we honor God uh, in the way that we honor his word, since it is through his word that he's revealed. Um, and this is true throughout the story of Israel, too. Uh, rewards or punishment are given based on how they follow God's command. It's that small little word that's repeated over and over in the Old Testament, if. I will do this if you will follow me. Well, does this, does this apply to us today? Is God's word as authoritative uh, today as it was then? Should we be as concerned about following the new covenant as they were supposed to be in following the old? Uh, this, is, this is an important question, because it's a question that people who proclaim uh, Christ would wear the name of Christ publicly, at least. Some would claim that we're no longer under that same obligation, that through Jesus we are no longer burdened by rules. We're no longer burdened by laws of God, and to a certain extent, I would I would amen that, right? Uh, if you look at Galatians 4 and 5, he talks about how we are no longer under that law. He says that we are free in there. He calls the law a yoke. He calls it slavery, the opposite of freedom. It is falling from grace. Wow, that's some, that is some strong language. If we feel as though we need to go back to that type of living. So this is a legitimate question. Does this still apply? Well, is Paul removing rules from the gospel in that statement by saying that we are now free? I think the emphasis is that the burden of those rules are removed through the blood of Christ, not necessarily the rules themselves. Because if you look later in the book of Galatians, or in the, in, in, in the chapter, Galatians 5 and verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, go do whatever you want to do, right? No, if we live by the Spirit, then we walk by the Spirit. And then earlier in that chapter, he's talking about, he gives you a list of all these things that you shouldn't be doing anymore, followed by a list of things you should be doing. Some people would claim that this, this doesn't apply to us today. Others would agree that the New Testament certainly offers a new way of life, but it really, the New Testament really just functions as, as wisdom literature. That's a phrase that I've heard a, a good bit. In the sense that 
The Bible is really just one giant metaphor where you can interpret its meaning in whatever way you want for yourself. And these people would scoff at the idea of restoring first century Christianity. Like going back to the book of Acts and trying to mimic what they do because they would argue that that was never the intent of the gospel. They argue, if, if, if I'm understanding them correctly, that because everything was written in a particular cultural context, a context completely different than our own, that we can't follow it in the same way that they did. Therefore, we just do our best uh, to leave the words in their cultural context and just kind of extract whatever wisdom we can from that particular passage. Does that make sense? And again, like before, to a certain extent, I would agree. Uh, take 1 Corinthians 16, for example. The first couple verses in 1 Corinthians 16, what do we use that for? Well, we use that as an example of, hey, they collected the first day of the week and they gave their funds to help support needy saints, right? I mean, after all, Paul directs all, all these other churches uh, to do the same. However, we don't follow that passage exactly. Y'all know that? Because later on in that passage, that, those funds are being collected to send to Jerusalem. I mean, you can ask the elders here, do, do, our, do our funds go to Jerusalem? No. No, we, what we do in that, we contextualize this passage. We draw wisdom from this passage to conclude that, you know what? We ought to be collecting to give to needy saints. But as far as sending it to Jerusalem, well, that need isn't quite there anymore. There are needs that are closer. There are needs that we can uh, take care of people. And there's other New Testament passages that would support that as well. But you see what I'm saying? We contextualize that passage. I think that's a pretty good way to go. However, some would conclude that we can contextualize the rest of the New Testament in the same way. That we just draw whatever wisdom we can to fit our times in whatever way that it, that it can. Is that, is that true? Is this the way we ought to approach God's Word? Is God's Word just a metaphor for life? Is God's Word only as authoritative as it fits in our day and age? Is God's Word authoritative today? Well, one thing I believe we have in common with both of these brethren that I brought up this morning... Um, at least I have found in, in either listening to them or in conversations, is that we all have a love for Jesus and a respect for what He did on this earth and what He accomplished through His death and His resurrection. And so with that common ground, here's what I would like to look at this morning. And I promise the rest of the lesson will not be as long as the intro. Um, here's what I'd like to look at this morning. How, how did Jesus view the authority of God? How did Jesus view God's Word? Well, uh, Bob brought us to uh, John chapter 17 a few weeks ago, looking at Jesus' prayer. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to be going throughout the book of John uh, in a minute, looking at different ways that Jesus approached this question, at least things that we can take from that. But Jesus opens up that prayer in John chapter 17. He says, glorify your Son that I may glorify you. And then later on in verse 4, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. So as Jesus reflects on what he has done and what he is going to do, he concludes, God, I have glorified you. How could he have been brought to that conclusion? How did he know that he has glorified God? But he says, because I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. God, I have glorified you because I did what you said. He continues that prayer. John chapter 17, verse 21. Jesus prays that His disciples may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in 
us. Jesus wants us to know God, and He wants us to be one with Him. But how does that happen? We'll go a little earlier in that same prayer. Verse 17 says, Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus wants us to be with the Father, with Him. And the way that that happens is that we are sanctified or made holy through God's Word. Sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. And Jesus' life serves as an example of this. In many ways, Jesus is the ideal Israelite. He's portrayed as the ideal son, the ideal human. Jesus is an example for us. Jesus was baptized as an example for us. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples as an example for us. And so we ought to look at Jesus. How does Jesus' life show this? Well, again, throughout John's Gospel, he makes special emphasis on Jesus being the example in submitting to God's authority. There's several different things that we could look at this morning. We're going to look at four different ways that Jesus submitted to God's authority. First, Jesus came to do the will of God. This was referenced earlier, John chapter 6 and verse 38. Uh, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus left heaven for the purpose of doing the Father's Will. Now he's in the middle of a discussion of, of uh, they're, they're talking about, well, God gave us manna from heaven as a sign. And so Jesus is saying, like, yeah, okay, you know how the manna left heaven and came down to serve his life and sustenance for you? That's me. I am that man. I came down for you. But in this submission and doing the will of the Father, he submits in two different ways. First, he recognizes that he has been sent, which implies that there was one who sent him, that there was authority above him who sent him to earth. Jesus submits in that regard. And secondly, he establishes that his mission, sent from the one above him, was to do whatever the authority told him to do. Jesus submits to that. He came to establish the kingdom of God, not his own, because he submitted to God's will. And as was pointed out by Gary in the, in the following the Lamb, wherever he goes, lesson, even in Gethsemane, even when, even when Jesus' will didn't perfectly line up with God's at the Garden of Gethsemane, when he wanted there to be some other way that this be accomplished, even in that, Jesus says, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus came to submit to the Father. So how does Jesus view God? Jesus views God as the authority in his life. On earth, he submitted to God in every way. Secondly, Jesus spoke the words of God. And he did this because he wanted to glorify God. Though all authority had been given to him on earth, this is repeated throughout the New Testament, uh, Satan even tries to, uh, to use this as a temptation for Jesus. Even though all authority had been given to him, Jesus submits to and speaks that which he hears from God. John chapter 7, beginning verse 16, says, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak for myself. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who, speak, or he who is speaking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. The words that Jesus shared were just the words of the Father. He repeated that which he heard from God, and this can be verified by the fact that he wasn't seeking his own glory. 
Jesus wasn't trying to create some following in some earthly way that we see other people do. Jesus just came to submit to the authority above him and share those words. John 8, beginning verse 28, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative. But I speak these things as the Father taught me, and He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Again, Jesus is not seeking His own. Jesus is not seeking Himself. He does nothing on His own initiative. He's always seeking to glorify God, always seeking to do whatever pleases the Father. But notice, to what extent does Jesus do this? He says, when you lift up the Son of Man. He said that phrase before. He used that before in John chapter 3 in speaking with Nicodemus, lifting up the Son of Man. But he says, when the Son of Man is lifted up, I believe that's a reference to him dying on the cross. When he is brought up on the cross, then you will see just how much I submit to the Father. Let this be an example to you of how much Jesus submitted to the Father. Philippians chapter 2, Jesus submitted or was obedient to the point of death. So did Jesus view God's word as a metaphor for his life? Did Jesus submit when it fit his cultural context? No, he was obedient to the point of death. And I'll just say as an aside, for those who are afraid of appearing of taking Jesus too seriously, or, or, or maybe appearing to be like one of those weirdos who follow Jesus in these, in, these, in these crazy ways. Every single thing that they do in their life is dictated by whatever the Father says. But you understand, look how seriously Jesus took you while he hangs there on the cross. And you ask yourself how seriously we ought to take him. Jesus submitted to the point of death. Not only because of his love for you, but his obedience to the Father. Thirdly, Jesus followed God's example. John 5 and verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself unless it is something He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus followed the example of the Father. It's clear that He would not go outside of the, the, the example because the Son can do nothing of Himself. Only if the Father does it will the Son do it. So not only does Jesus do what the Father says, but he does what the Father does, following his commands and his examples. We see that in Jesus. He is following whatever the Father says in total submission. And lastly, Jesus saw the value of God's word. I don't want this to be interpreted as he would only submit if he saw the value to God's word. He would submit either way. But I think the implication is he saw just how valuable everything God said was. John 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's interesting here. Jesus equates justice or doing what is just with doing the will of the Father. Jesus is a just judge because He does the will of the Father. Meaning, knowing right from wrong, knowing what is just and unjust, is only because the will of the Father lays that out for Him. So, I, as I hear, I judge. My judgment is just. Why, Jesus? Why is your judgment just? Because I do the will of the Father. If we're going to have just judgments of others, of ourselves in, in, in our lives, we're only going to get that from 
what the Father reveals to us. Again, we talked about it before, holiness. How can we know what is holy? God tells us. Jesus sees that. John 12, verse 49, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father Himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that His commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus, again, removes His own initiative for the will of God. All that He says comes from God. Why? Because I know that His commandment is eternal life life. Those are the words that Jesus is sharing. Words that lead to life. It's not from the mouth of Jesus, but in John chapter 6, as Jesus looks at his disciples and say, are you going to leave too? Are you going to walk away from me? Peter famously says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus spoke the words of God. He spoke the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus has shown us. I think it's pretty clear that Jesus' view of God was that God's words were authoritative and that He needed to submit to them in every instance. Are we exempt from this? The Son certainly was not. Again, Jesus sets an example for us. And the example is, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If we are going to be sanctified, if we are going to be holy, it's only because God has directed us through His Word in that way. The Bible is clear about where authority comes from. Authority comes from God, and this is consistent throughout Scripture. He is holy. He desires us to be holy. And the only way that we are going to be holy, the only way that we are going to be sanctified is through His truth, through the words of God. So if you claim to desire to have God dwell within you, are you looking at His Word? Are we going to God's Word to figure these things out? If you claim to want to be holy, how much do you respect God's Word? Are we respecting it in the way that Jesus did? Now, I will say, it's a discouraging thing sometimes to have debates with other Christians about doctrinal things. It is. It's not an enjoyable task. And if it is an enjoyable task for you, you need to look at yourself in the mirror because that should not be something that is fun for us to do. And there, this temptation can then bubble up where, where, where we get to the point where, look, all right, fine, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and we'll all be fine. We'll at least have the blood of Jesus and we can rejoice in that, right? And so we avoid having these conversations and we, can't, we cannot give in to that. Jesus did not avoid difficult conversations. I want you to turn to uh, the book of Jude. Second to last book in the Bible. Go to Revelation and just go a few pages back. You'll find the book of Jude. Jude opens up his letter and he tells them what he wants to write about. He says in verse 3, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. What did Jude want to talk about? Jude wanted to talk about Jesus. And he wanted to talk about the salvation that we have through Jesus. He wants to talk about the blood that, that takes away our sins. He wants to rejoice in that with other people. But he can't. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. 
He wants to write about our common salvation, but he felt it necessary that he contend earnestly for the faith because there were some that were manipulating the grace of our God, and he could not let that go. He could not talk about that. Although, like, of course it was a discouraging thing for him to have to write these things, for him to go to this extent, but it was necessary. That's the word that Jude uses. It was necessary for Jude to correct this false teaching and remind them of, in verse 17, to remind them of the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Jude direct their minds to? Jude directs their minds to the God-given revelation that the apostles had. He brings them back to God's Word. So, of course, we would prefer to talk about things that we have in common. And where we, can, where we can have that discussion, we ought to have that discussion. But sometimes it's necessary to contend earnestly for the faith. But in addition to ignoring God's authority, another danger is that we are upholding what we think is God's authority, but is in fact our own traditions. Both, I would argue, both do not share a proper reverence for God's Word. Both do not follow the example of Jesus in obeying God's authority. The Pharisees are condemned for placing undue burdens on others under some skewed veil of holiness, under, some, under their own righteousness. That's what they were teaching and, and forcing other people to follow, even though Jesus says they didn't lift those burdens themselves. Are we holding other people to our own standard of tradition, our own standard of righteousness, or are we holding ourselves and others to the standard of God? This cannot be us. We cannot be ones who are trying to lift other people up in our own eyes and condemning them when they don't follow traditions that we have. Again, Jesus proves this truth in His life, and He prays that we would be sanctified by the truth, sanctified by the Word of God, not our own words. We can do nothing of ourselves. We find holiness and consequently a relationship with God in nothing else but His Word. And the beauty of God's Word is that while there are rules, and we hate rules, we don't like rules, while there are rules that we must seek out and we must do our best to follow, there is also the truth of the blood of Jesus Christ. The ultimate provision when we fail in that pursuit. And glory be to God for that. Let it be known that God's authoritative word tells us that we are saved by nothing other than God's grace, shown through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If we portray anything else to other people, we are not going to His authority in that. We are saved by the grace of God. No other authority on earth has the ability to save. No other authority has love that is equal to God's. So submit yourself to Him. Obey Him in the way that Jesus obeyed. Commit your life to Him. If you've been contemplating that thought, whether you should follow Jesus, you're not going to find truth anywhere else. You may find things that resemble some things that are in the truth, but until you go to God's Word, you will not be sanctified. You will not be made holy until you submit yourself to Him. Commit your life to Him through baptism and receive the grace that comes from God that none of us deserve. Receive this forgiveness of sins that can be found in nothing else. If you want to be a Christian, that can happen. Now, it requires a change. It requires you living in a different way, but man, what a beautiful life change that is. 
You would be submitting yourself to the, one, the only one who can make you holy. Do you want to be sanctified? Do you want to be made right with God? I invite you to come up now while we stand and sing.